I guess one of the problems with talks is that they're made up entirely of words. <laughs> when uh, a talk was requested, it was before this afternoon of practice. I appreciated the invitation that it would give to sort of settle into something and receive. And um, so as I sit here now, I'll just be honest with you. I, um, I was very moved by our afternoon of practice. I did practice also, but it wasn't as much what came up in my practice as the feeling of a kind of my heart breaking open at the immensity of what we're trying to do. Something like that. But it wasn't a conceptual thing. It was a real feeling, a deep, deep like body experience. And uh, so my concern then in offering a talk tonight was that it would somehow impose something on whatever was post that experience, right? Whatever was post our practice. There's this place where we live that's between rationality and mystery, where we think we know, and really it's impossible to know anything. The processes of perception and construction that happen in the entire body-mind moment by moment and create this world, and then this fragment of capacity to watch a fragment of that process. And we think we know the mind. It's not possible. It's impressive to talk about this in terms of billions and billions of neural connections and then all the hormonal stuff that's happening and how there seems to be you know information carried through spinal fluid and the the brain that's in the gut and the brain literally neurons that are in the heart i mean all that stuff's impressive but it's it doesn't even come close to naming the actual 
natural ecology of the human experience. The Buddha talked about this very fact in, in actually one, a very famous quote of his where he reaches down to the forest floor and picks up a handful of leaves and says, so are there more leaves, monks, in my hand or on the forest floor? Well, more leaves throughout the forest floor, the, hand, the leaves in your hand are very few on the forest floor is many. Just so, this is really what I've shared with you, you know, in relationship to what I know, but it's enough. And when he said enough, he's talking about enough to free the heart of its ignorance and the suffering that comes from ignorance. You can't stop the body from dying and you can't stop the world from being confusing, but you can stop all the extra horror that is created around and on top of and through that. That's what that handful of leaves was to do. So if we project onto that statement that the Buddha knew all this stuff rationally, that would be an absurdity, a complete absurdity, because it's unlanguageable. Buddha shmuda. You can't do it. Not possible. And yet, here we are, and we say we're practicing mindfulness. And we turn the attention towards, let's say, the mind itself, or towards sensation, towards perception. And the conscious mind can catch a flash of something. And we say, ah, it's a perception, or ah, a thought just happened, or I feel this in my body, or something. Ah, there's mindfulness. This is what's going on. This is my experience now. But the depths of the sea from which those waves came is just barely hinted at in what we actually apprehend in such a moment of mindfulness. It's still a difference between something and nothing, which is pretty significant. Maybe the refinement of our understanding could include catching the 
tips of those waves and just knowing that it's little. Knowing that it's indicative of the direction the winds are blowing. Not presuming it's the reality, the totality of the mind. And yet at the same time, allowing some kind of trust of, of that direction that is sensed, of the uh, information inherent in the feeling body and the information that's even inherent in the spaces between our own thoughts, that there's more that we know that is not rational, but there is a knowing, something like that. For some reason that I won't try to pinpoint right now, What emerges is to insert into this sense of rationality and mystery the relational experience. Well, like, what is this? What is what is actually happening here? And once again. You know, we go from, I would say, near total ignorance of what's happening relationally in any moment of interpersonal contact to some of those leaves when we practice mindfulness and concentration together and we touch. And we touch with that much more wakefulness and still there's the whole kind of vast ocean of what is unknown and rationally unknowable in this moment of relational experience. And that little peck of knowledge, that little peck of uh, perceiving something in the moment of contact, because we're awake this time and we weren't last time, is significant. And I think it does point to the direction of the wind that blows, the winds that blow between us. I think in meditation, we're standing, uh, we're standing at the precipice 
of the canyon from which those winds are blowing up, where uh, uh, whatever means are available to us, whatever doorways, the senses, the thinking mind, whatever you want to call intuition, um, is gathering that in the moment apprehension of this incredibly complex touch, interpersonal touch. And, uh, you know, catching what, what fragrance is in the wind and feeling the moisture in the air of the wind and uh, sensing the power, perhaps, of the wind. just as it's per, you know it just as it's not rationally knowable to analyze all of that as we get closer to kind of the intimacy of contact not just kind of an intimacy of personality, but an immediacy of contact. Whatever the body-mind is capable of learning, it's, it's learning, it's drinking that. So my thinking mind may not know what I'm getting, but something is happening. Something like that. So even as I point to the limits of the kind of knowing that, you know, the cognizing mind, the meaning-making mind is capable of. There is still tremendous power in coming into that intimacy with the world, with each other as, you know, human beings in relational meditation. But perhaps you've experienced, you go into nature and when the mind is clear, the perceptions are actually bright and more precise. And when the mind is concentrated, the noise gets out of the way and the refinement, the detail 
of experiences can be astonishing, splendorous, beautiful, awesome in the sense of awe-like, almost terrible, it's so, so vast. So the power of the meditative qualities of the mind are not limited by the power of the rational knowing mind. Do you see what I'm saying? That there's still, without us understanding it, there is something happening. So we have the audacity to develop that power, those meditative qualities, and put them together with the complexity, delicacy, unknowability, and sort of sustaining power of relationship. You know, the amplifying that happens when we practice together in mindfulness concentration, when we come together to inquire and these two tiny little thinking minds you know, make something of a spark that is more than twice the size of the spark of these two little puny little thinking things. <laughs> and, you know, something, some kind of tinder gets ignited in the belly or wherever that cannot get ignited. in the tiny self. And we try to benefit from any source of wisdom and guidance (coughs) for this inquiry, this inquiry into Sangha, this inquiry into essential respect, this inquiry into hope, this inquiry into white allies. We try to apply that power and to somehow keep it from teetering into
the conditioned, neurotic, reactive limited, crushing habit mind, right? We're, we're doing something that is really kind of crazy, something like that. I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's you know, how can we possibly understand our own oppression, let alone someone else's, when the whole experience of what oppression is, of what pain is, of what suffering is, of what compassion is, is just barely knowable with the thinking mind. And yet we bring all of ourselves to the inquiry. And we, we invoke the power of the meditative qualities of the mind. We invoke the power of relationship. We even invoke the guidance of wisdom traditions, like the Dhamma and stuff. Like, what can perception, what can the framework of perception help us to understand or see? What can the framework of the notion of the mind constructing this experience. What, how can that contribute? What can the framework, the notion, the idea of clinging, can the word clinging actually touch what happens when the mind locks into its own creation and takes it as real? Can we actually, you know, talk about that? Well, we just did. Just, I just said a sentence about it, you know, and I could feel it. But the, re- the actuality, the, you know, the, 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 the getting lost, the fusion with my own cinematic creation, I know this is out of character and I'm probably not supposed to be speaking, but I have this absolutely burning question that can't be unspoken. Ah. Hmm. So have you ever seen when two people who are maybe had met in a past life, whether we call that soulmates, lovers, I know that there's some couples here But when we're talking about that and what happens when this dialogue happens between two, maybe twins, identical, or yeah, fraternal or identical twins, and how the power of that might change as a result. Yeah. So how does the power, how might the power of relational meditation practice, of insight dialogue, change or manifest differently between intimate partners, twins, 
or some others that yeah. have somehow some deep connection. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Much better said. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I got it, yeah. First of all, I love that you broke the form. <laughs> yeah. So, practicing insight dialogue with significant others, whomever they may be, twin, partner, super close friend, whatever. Has special difficulties and special gifts. (laughs) (laughs) How many, how many retreats? (laughs) Stop counting. Um, But it's interesting because that provides another doorway into what what we're talking about, which is that, okay, so since we have you two here, Roberto, Delia, they really have done maybe 15 ID retreats. I don't know how many. I don't know. Yeah. And you've been married how long? How long? 44 years. 44 years. Right. So, let me just guess. (laughs) (laughs) You could ask, you know. (laughs) When, When you, like I saw you practicing together today or yesterday, I just saw that. Today, yeah. When you meet each other, is your, are your 44 years present in that moment of meeting? They have to be. Exactly. It's inevitable. Exactly. But where are they going to go? They have to be. (laughs) (laughs) My point exactly. And So, to touch the moment in the kind of freshness or emptiness that, let's say, you or I might be able to, no problem, because we had all of, you know, two minutes of conversation in our entire lives, right? We can pretty much drop most of those two minutes, and then most of what's going to sit between us is all the usual constructs that divide us, just the normal stuff, gender, race, you know, everything else. Well, you know, they've got all of those conditions affecting this moment of raising children and all the arguments they've had and all the love they've made and, you know, all the you know, who left what on the kitchen table, 
kind of conversations, right? Every moment of contact has that, just like every moment of contact with anyone has everything possible that's there, including all the prior women I've dialogued with or met and, you know, and so on and so forth. We all do that all the time, but this has this special, well, it's in kind of, you know, kind of pop psychology jargon baggage. <laughs> but it also has this what I call constructed intimacy. It has so much shared history that along with that burden comes all the gifts of the constructed intimacy, the safety, the, the kind of constructed knowing, you know, what those little glimpses, those little eye movements mean, and all of that, that if you and I were to drop into dialogue, some, something might drift by your eyes that I may not understand. I might catch it, but I might not understand it in the way Roberto and Delia would with each other, right? And that is both the baggage aspect because maybe I don't, maybe Roberto doesn't really understand that thing or Delia doesn't understand it in Roberto and it becomes, well, just the history of 44 years of projections. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're not supposed to say right so quickly, not while <laughs> Oh, I was just saying that, that there are things that we think we understand and we don't, right. right? And that there are also things that trigger us, right? That look is the same look that, you know, triggers all kinds of, from past whatever, jo joy and pain, right? So, so bringing to this, the ability to dwell even for a moment outside of that constructing process is uh, an opportunity to stand outside the cathedral that has been built and to develop a kind of a perspective that comes from the unconstructed intimacy, from the just, mm -hmm. like what I could have with Delia, mm -hmm. just in the moment of just awareness and I didn't. I don't know if everybody heard you, but it gives new life. It gives new because life because it doesn't. It's truly unconstructed. I mean, the baggage is dropped to the degree that it's possible. Yeah. But, but it's felt. Yeah. So there is a level of uh, not knowing that is. It's the whole body, mind, heart that is really not knowing. The, an awareness of yeah. whatever 
constructs, expectations, you, you know, are running, running by, but there is, you know, a very sharp dropping of everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there is a new encounter. Right. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in a way, I wonder if that points to our hopeful encounter with the pressing problems of this life that we might meet them like that. You know, not just between husband and wife or something like that, but mm -hmm. with race and gender and, mm -hmm. right? But, not but, and with that aspiration, which I hold and I think others hold, what I feel we've been doing here at this retreat is trying to provide the beginnings of a foundation from which to do that. Not having the some sort of pride that we are doing it and we have done it. Not at all. Yeah, right. Thank you. So, uh, the Buddha spoke highly of diligence. And he likened it to the elephant's footprint because it's so large, it can contain the footprints of any other animal, of all the other animals. And just so, diligence contains within it all of the wholesome qualities that would lead us to a deep understanding, to insight, to release of these imprisonment that we're in with our own minds, our own hearts. So if you don't mind my continuing with you two, this is not the diligence of your 44 years of marriage. This is the diligence of your 15 retreats and all your study of Dhamma and all your other practice. You know, the, so the diligence we're talking about is the diligence to develop the mind, to develop the heart, and Right, and that that's going to uh, a diligence aimed towards uh, clear, clear discernment. Thank you. Right. So while we were in practice, uh, while we have been in practice over these days we, the teachers, have been really 
wrestling with how can we support the meditators in uh, cultivating a robust um, mindfulness and concentration and knowing, knowing really clearly, consciously knowing that this is not separate from developing a robust love, that these are not two separate things, that the receiving internally of our own brokenness and the receiving of the others without judgment, with respect, with care, is critical Mm -hmm. to the uh, developing the strength of mindfulness and concentration together and doing the kind of deep investigation of perception, let alone of race and culture. So how can we how can we help establish, really establish the practice? And we would come in and we would offer a practice and sometimes, you know, everybody would like drive dive right down to the, you know, quite a strong stability of mind. And then sometimes we would see, you know, the upwelling of the habits that come from a lifetime. Each of us brings a lifetime of social conditioning, right? And then the urges for for social pleasure that come into play and get us going. It's like, oh, damn, you know, sometimes I would feel that because I would wish Oh, you know, that's just me wishing something. That's all that is. It's not a very big deal, actually. But the uh, because we take so seriously. potential of bringing true meditative development and meditative meditation practice together with the stuff of the, the pain of the world. Right? The, the whole constructing process that builds these layers and layers and layers of suffering. To, to bring those two together feels like the grand experiment, and it's not done by any individual. It's not possible. This is this question about Sangha. You cannot do this alone. There's absolutely no question about it.
so So engaging uh, together on this quest is what we all, whether we knew it or not, uh, you know, agreed to when we came here. Uh, this is, I don't, many of you are new, so I'll just share this. Uh, this is a first in this very explicit introduction of what might be called uh, social concerns, or I, I don't know what the label would be, but you know what I'm talking about. What's that? The tragedy of our times. The tragedy of our times, but anyway, into the heart of the meditation retreat. Uh, and Again, it's very easy to you know, say that you're going to, let's say, bring mindfulness to relationship or you're going to develop a communications process, but to not diminish even a little bit a one's I'll make this a personal statement because I don't want to project onto you how, what this might mean to you. For me to diminish even a little bit my knowledge and my sense of and respect for the, the penetrating depth of meditative uh, capacity and how that drops, uh, enables a dropping beneath Uh, the knowable and the known in some sense, to not diminish that at all uh, uh, is essential to me. It's a core aspiration. And so <laughs> so you're stuck. <laughs> you know, this is what you this is what you get with these teachers, and uh, it might be really incredibly skillful to just back off a little bit and, like, you know, spend a little more time in the construction zone. I mean, I, there's no problem going to the construction zone. We have to, but to not, never lose sight of of the what I just sometimes call the meditative element. Mm -hmm. Can I say something? Sure. The sense of the meditative element that you referred to, and I felt that... Can you talk I felt that the sense of the meditative element that Gregory just spoke of, I experienced it very deeply in the diet, exploring the race. 
the, it's being immersed in a, a primordial kind of um, sense of humanity that has no, um, no borders. It's the ability to kind of have a very, very um, sensory, visual, I don't know what to call it, experience of the depth of pain, sorrow, that we share, that we touch in one another. And the sense, the clarity of, I don't have to understand it all. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It's about the recognition that the more I immerse in that soup or in that li liquid kind of, it dislodges the, the knots. It begins exactly. to penetrate exactly. the construction of those tight self-me and self-that. Exactly. And actually that is a great place to close because that dissolving process can be a mystery. We don't have to know how it works. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.